there was this ruler and around that ruler was a council within the council you had ministers now oh, here is an interesting thing that he spoke he speaks about and we must take that into consideration he says that the council as well as the council of ministers had representation from all the four varnas this aspect is extremely important to notice why it is important to notice because the dominant narrative is that the brahmins and the kshatriyas they were involved in governance and everybody else was denied a voice but this is not what the reality is there was participation from all the four varnas and all the four varnas were represented in the council of ministers foundations of indian culture and in light of that today we are going to discuss indian polity the four chapters that your bindo has written in that same book i also presume that uh, you are familiar with the background in which this text was written this was written in response to a person by the name of william archer who described india savage and uncivilized in as many ways as possible now we may think that this was an anomaly we may think that there was this individual who was putting journalistic vitriol in india but that was not what the reality was the reality was that describing india and hindus as uncivilized savage uncouth brute had become the dominant paradigm it was the main framework in which india was being discussed when shorabindo wrote this text now the reason why we did not come across something like this is because we are not exposed to the colonial narrative which was operational on us in post independent india in post colonial india and in a certain sense you can say that this is a massive failing of the education system the history that we are taught particularly of the british colonial period we are largely taught the massive drain of wealth that occurred during that period that's a reality no one can deny that in fact india was impoverished beyond measure but there were many other things that also happened during the colonial period and we are not taught about so in fact the narrative which Sri Aurobindo is refuting or has refuted 
was put in place at least 100 years ago there was this gentleman by the name of james mill who read who wrote this book called history of british india and in history of british india there are seven chapters on the hindus and in those chapters he has described hindus as savages and uncouth in as many ways as possible in a certain sense you can say that he set the narrative he got the ball rolling rolling and after this book got published and became famous east india company employed james mill and within a span of say about 11 years james mill became the ceo of east india company he was the chief sitting at uh india house in london so this narrative which he had produced began to get a massive political backing and gradually what happened was that this narrative became part of the educational system of britain first and when universities began to get established in india this narrative became part of the indian educational system and in a certain sense you can say that this narrative hasn't really fizzled out even today it is it is operational it is not that explicit it is not as explicit as it was described uh, by james mill but the hindus hindu culture hindu ways hindu civilization hindu polity they are still being described as hierarchical and oppressive in a manner very similar to how it was put in place by james mill this still going on so particularly from this perspective and the history that we have sri aurobindo's foundations of indian culture is as relevant today as it was when sri aurobindo had initially written it so people who are interested in renaissance in india that it becomes important that we read and reread this text and really understand the nuances that he is speaking about this context is extremely important because if you would see you know in the first chapter itself of the indian polity he is doing a purpaksha he describes that the indian political system the traditional indian political system is described as hierarchical and oppressive described as caste ridden described as a system where people participation was none described as a system where the voice of people never mattered described as a system where 
there was no presence of democracy whatsoever now why you know his chapters become important i would say that 99.9% educated people in india today would say that democracy is an implant of the western world on the indian soil this is the power of the narrative and this is what the belief is at this point in time how did this belief actually get established it is because of the narrative and that's why you know the refutation of this narrative becomes incredibly important and therefore it becomes important to understand how indian polity evolved over a period of time now there are some isolated facts that i am putting in front of you and then we will stitch them together amongst the post colonial countries you will be surprised india is the only country which has had an almost seamless run with democracy you know if you take out that brief period when indira gandhi introduced emergency in india india has been a democratic nation since independence amongst the post colonial nations india is an exception second isolated fact you must have read in your history books that akbar established two houses if you will diwane khas and diwane aam you know let these facts remain through the panchayati raj there is vibrant democracy present in india even today how do these facts basically get accounted for in the writings of shorabind if you would go through the chapters shorabind says that the evolution of indian polity underwent a few stages the first stage of course was when the society was at a rudimentary level small settlements people scattered in small settlements migrating from one place to another in vedic india this collectivity is called visha he says that initially matters concerning governance and social relevance were decided in collectivity in various sabhas that you actually have the concept of monarchy was not there society grew 
and then it was realized that there needs to be a leader or a ruler who needs to oversee the people this individual was democratically elected now you know when i'm talking about democracy we need to understand that shirobindo is speaking about an indian brand of democracy he's not talking about the western brand which is prevalent at this point in time so this nuance or this description is very very important or rather you can say that this caveat is very important so there has been an indian brand of democracy and that is the kind of democracy that we are trying to understand in this brief meeting that we are having this became hereditary over a period of time now with the growth in society the four varnas also came into existence four classes of people in the earlier stages all these four, four varnas were participating in the governance under the leadership of the ruler there is a third stage you know that it describes the stage of the consolidation of monarchy and he says that this happened after the invasion of alexander when it was realized that it is important to have one consolidated state and kautilya made a massive contribution towards this however he also says that before the monarchical system came into existence there was this conflict which was occurring within the society with respect to republican forms of govern of, of governance versus the monarchical form of governance and these rep republican forms of governance are described quite nicely in buddhist literature why it is described in buddhist literature buddha himself came from an area where republican form of governance was employed his father was one of those heads so governance was done by elected people people who were representatives of the people and shorbindo in the third chapter he also talks about the inclusion of this form of governance when he formed sangha later when he put together the monastic form of governance when he put together <clears throat> sangha then matters were deliberated upon and they were put to vote shorbindo describes this 
Now, when you come to the monarchical form of governance, which became a reality for most part of India, or you know, for most part of Hindu India, for at least seventeen, eighteen hundred years, you know, depending upon the region that we are speaking about, this system was not as it was described by quote unquote the British historians. It is a very different system of governance. Shurabindo says that at the apex was the king or the ruler. You know, in fact, he also has made this point that there were women folk in governance as well. And we know from our history that there have been many queens who have ruled so there certainly was space in indian polity for women rulers so instead of king you know i think we should use the term ruler so there was this ruler and around that ruler was a council within the council you had ministers now oh, here is an interesting thing that he spoke he speaks about and we must take that into consideration he says that the council as well as the council of ministers had representation from all the four varnas this aspect is extremely important to notice Why it is important to notice because the dominant narrative is that the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas they were involved in governance and everybody else was denied a voice. But this is not what the reality is. There was participation from all the four Varnas and all the four Varnas were represented in the council of ministers now around the ruler and the council you had two very powerful assemblies shurabindo calls them metropolitan assembly and general assembly and then he describes them now you know Earlier, I was talking about an isolated fact, right? Divane arm and divane heart are basically reflection of that system of governance. Within the Muslim form of governance in India, at least, these two bodies were non-existent. They were introduced by Akbar. When you look at Akbar, and when you look at his governmental policies, he stands out amongst Delhi sultans, 
and other Mughal rulers. And if you look at the graph of economic decline of India in about 2000 years, you will find that in, or rather during the rule of Akbar, there's a certain spike in the graph. Through his governmental policies, Akbar largely was able to establish harmony within the society, particularly in his later years. And this harmony that he established also showed in the rise of economic activity within the Indian civilization. So Diwane Khas and Diwane Aam, you know, were reflections of these two assemblies that Shurabindo speaks about. The Paura Assembly and the General Assembly. The Metropolitan Assembly was basically located at the capital of the state. And Metropolitan Assembly had representation once again from all the four Varnas and from the various guilds that were present in the Nagara. Sri goes on to describe that it was basically this assembly which was involved in the maintenance of the city almost completely. And this they do, did through various administrative bodies, including committees. Matters concerning the public were discussed in these assemblies. And, and the Metropolitan Assembly was a powerful assembly in the sense that if there was a consensus on a particular matter, then it was binding upon the king, uh, the ruler, and the council to basically follow it. The, the assembly represented the will of the people. This is extremely important. The people participation in governance was a very, very important principle. Then you had general assembly. General assembly also had representatives from all the four varnas coming from villages, mandalas, and so on and so forth. So if the Metropolitan Assembly reflected the will of people living in cities, General Assembly reflected the will of people living in villages. And Sri also says that 
the members of these two committees met together from time to time you know just like rajya sabha and uh, lok sabha meet for discussion of important matters these two assemblies met to take decisions on important matters and the decisions were basically conveyed to the ruler and the council arthya shastra is very candid in stating this in the happiness of the people lies the happiness of the king and it also says that the king or the ruler has to be self denying in his or her approach towards the people should consider the people as children whose needs have to be taken into account first before one engages in one's own needs now there is another factor which was working on the polity this was the rule of dharma dharma was the umbrella under which everyone was working including the ruler so the respect that the ruler commanded was in proportion to the following of dharma by this individual if the ruler was not seen dharmic the ruler began to lose the confidence of people and both the council as well as these two assemblies that we spoke about had the power to remove the ruler and that is why when you will look at indian history you know you will find from time to time instances of change of ruler by people by by these different bodies that we spoke about so this whole idea that the people participation in hindu india in matters of governance was non existent is nothing but a piece of baloney it is nothing but falsehood this is also the reason why you will find a vibrant democracy in india in any public space you will find indian people discussing politics in buses and trains and in particularly trains the main conversation is around politics so you know this whole idea that democracy is a western transplant on the indian soil is completely bogus 
and it is evident in how people behave towards government it's a different matter altogether that you know that their voice may not be getting heard you know as opposed to how it was earlier but people still discuss matters now there's another there's another uh factor that needs to be accounted for in post independent india there were efforts made to make the indian people not vote along jati lines it has not succeeded so far what is the reason jati and varna based voting for sending representatives to different bodies of governance has been happening in india since antiquity it's not a question you know whether it is good or bad i'm not talking about that, you know what i'm saying is that it is basically because of this ancient practice that the practice of sending representatives to different governance bodies in current india based on quote unquote caste lines hasn't really disappeared what is the difference between western brand of democracy and indian brand of democracy western brand of democracy talks about individual self determination the indian brand of democracy spoke about communal self determination self determination was important self determination is always important in the myths of any collectivity including family in my understanding a good parent is one who is able to identify the unique traits of his or her child and supports the process of growth of that child along those lines instead of imposing on the child what the parent believes is right this also interestingly is the foundation of the varna system people are constituted differently people have different aspirations different uh, desires for participating in the human collectivity that inner aspiration through the vocation of the individual has to be honored that was the basis of the varna system i'm pretty much sure you know the the ideas of sabhav and sadharma have already been spoken about so i would not go into those details but this whole idea you know that there is this oppressive hierarchical system which is not taking into account people participation or the voice of people is something 
which was completely alien to the Hindu civilization. Now, before I open the floor for questions, I want to go into just a bit of details of how this representation came about. You know, this individual, James Mill, who wrote History of British India, never came to India. He had no personal experience of India. He basically wrote the history sitting in his closet in, in London. That's what he did. And he was also an individual who has played an instrumental role in the transformation of the British society. You will be surprised if you will read the history of 19th century England, that there was literally no people participation in governments, almost none whatsoever. What was the form of governance that they had? They, of course, had monarchy. They had these two houses, House of Lords and House of Commons, which interestingly was established in England in 1688, after the British people had already come in contact with India. And given that House of Lords and House of Commons are almost exact translations of Divane Aam and Divane Khas, I am of the view that even this introduction within the British system of governance happened after Britain's exposure to India. British governance occurred at that point in time through monarchy and aristocracy. And the aristocrats in these two houses were chosen by very few people. And they too were amongst the aristocrats. There wasn't any secret ballot, you know, which was going on in England. There was no voting which occurred in England. So in a certain sense, you can say that Britain at that point in time was actually engaging in a very hierarchical and oppressive form of governance. And James Mill speaks about that in great detail. You know, all those writings that he did for England are actually here in this book, Political Writings by James Mill. So you get a good sense of what was occurring in England at that point in time. So in the light of his British experience, you know, with respect to governance, imagined governance in India, whatever was imagined by him became the dominant narrative. And this dominant narrative, because it has become part of our own educational system, we have internalized it. And this narrative, incidentally, is still going on. Pick up any NCRT book, sixth grade onwards. 
in explicit and implicit ways if you will come across the hindu form of governance or hindu rajas and rani you will always find them described as hierarchical and oppressive that the ruler was the representative of dharma ruling in light of the will of people or in consonance with the will of people is something which is non existent in the narrative even today therefore you know whenever democracy is spoken about people begin looking at the west and they forget what the reality or what the actual reality was within the hindu context within the indian context i understand that reading shorbindo is not very easy it can be a bit of a task but if you will go through these chapters gradually and slowly if you would read the lines and if you would read in between the lines you will find that you get a very different kind of reality of indian governance which actually agrees with the historical records that we have and it also agrees with our collective behavior in terms of people's voice and people's participation and moving forward i personally think that these writings will become very very important in india's renaissance there is a certain churning which is happening in india at this point in time you know people have started questioning the narrative the construction of the narrative the context in which the narratives were created the impact of those narratives you know there are shimmering voices here and there but after a certain point in time these voices are going to become a chorus and once the chorus happens the shift will take place it has to happen in renaissance in india what is shorbindo saying he's saying that we need to recover things of the past and then use them in understanding and shaping the present you know i'm not saying this verbatim but this is basically what he's saying in one of the chapters in renaissance to cover the spiritual knowledge you know let it flow in philosophy in sciences art craft art, architecture and so on so forth and interpret the current problems the current social problems in that light the words of yogi never go waste i believe in this they won't go away this is this is a collective yagya which is happening and i feel 
that people who are participating participating in this yagya need to do their own homa and particularly the younger people who are here should think about becoming part of academia and writing on these matters the education in india at this point in time you know particularly in social sciences is absolutely dismal with respect to the subject matter that we engage in and teach it's all coming from the west including the western representation of ancient india this is not going to change until unless people participate in changing that discourse so i'm specifically saying this to the younger people that there is need to change the narrative and this narrative will not get changed politically this is not going to happen what has to be changed through scholarly means can only be changed through scholarly means not through politics by having said that you know i want to stop here my idea was to basically give you a sense of you know these chapters that you have in the has written on indian polity uh, i can tell you from my own experience that i have read and reread them and every time that i read these chapters i get new insights so continue to engage with them and whatever comes out from these readings or from this endeavor try to basically use that in your social context now you know i i said something to the students i want to say something to the people you know who are in uh, in 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 positions of governance wherever you are always have an eye of the people uh, and an ear for the people who are considered your subordinates be as inclusive as possible in governance and if you will do this you will be a leader who will be truly loved and respected this is something which runs in our fabric even today be humane be compassionate and listen to the voices of the people in a genuine way and you will see that you will command their genuine respect and their love and affection this is you know this is what our civilization has done since antiquity this is part of our collective consciousness and unconsciousness if you will tap into that you will be massively effective as governors and leaders for the indian civilization in fact you know there is another problematic uh, narrative which is prevalent in the history books in india and this is that ashoka promoted buddha dharma this is not true this is completely not true 
वाई डू आई से अशोका प्रमोटेड धर्म अशोका डिड नॉट प्रमोट बुद्ध धर्म अशोका टिल अटन पॉइंट इन टाइम वॉज अ वेरी क्रूल किंग वॉज नोन एज चंड अशोक वॉट कलिंगा वॉर डेड फॉर हेम वॉज दैट इट लेट टू अ चेंज ऑफ हिस्स हाथ नॉट अ चेंज यू नो in his court and court religious orientation change of art because he had already converted court and court converted you know to buddhism you know I, i don't think you know the 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 scheme of uh, conversion actually existed in india you know you had different paramparas you had different traditions people followed different traditions so he had started following you know the tradition of buddha way before the kalinga war the bloodshed that he saw in kalinga war led to a change in heart and after that you know he began engaging in practices to become dhamma ashoka and i think you know he became one and therefore when you look at his various rock edits there are two things that you will find one is that he is speaking about dhamma and all the descriptions of dharma actually tally with what is described in the arthashastra which was written only two year two generations before and on many accounts he is basically talking about raj dharma and he is behaving exactly in the manner in which the dharma of a king is described in arthashastra and arthashastra you know basically is a reflection of the larger dharma shastra or the dharma shastras that were prevalent at that time so you know going back to the question you know i would rather want to discuss these issues than the kings you know who were uh, who were removed so one thing you mentioned that uh, british governance system or uh, changed with the infusion of indian democratic ideas so if you could uh, say about some books materials or anything so that one can deep dive into those yeah i am actually developing that you know i'm 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 developing that at this point in time you know it's another year or so i will be uh, releasing some something on this matter really nice James Mill James Mill was certainly an individual who was talking about schools for all uh you know even education was not prevalent in the in the british society on a massive scale education was limited to people within clergy and aristocrats you know yeah. so it was it was extremely limited and this individual is talking about schools for all and uh we have clear evidence that education was for all at least in southern india in that time frame in that time period there was nearly 100% literacy in madras presidency which was surveyed between 1822 and 1825 and there was this individual by the name of andrew well 
uh, who traveled in southern india and uh, he came back to england in 1797 and then he started a movement on a very small scale for education of all he was doing that you know within the church of england whereas when james mill got involved in the, in the movement you know he was he was mainly talking about what can be considered as secular education but even this education for all is an idea which the britishers actually got from india and there is very clear evidence of that so you know british society has been massively transformed by the british contact of india and we have not we have not gotten gone into those details you know and why would we go into the details you know because if we are taught right from the very beginning that civilization has come to us from the west you know the likelihood of us opening to something that we could have uh, contributed in the growth of the west is something which is not going to uh, come into our consciousness you see so this is this is what the what the problem is you know uh sir i would like to take one question and uh, then we can end uh it sure. uh, one one of the criticism that is being pointed out at us is that uh, no doubt we have a wonderful history uh, and there are various good models of governance social order but uh, we lack being imaginative or recreating the future uh, the future because as we see that the parliamentary form of democracy in india is failing but what is, we are unable to give a new shape to the alternative models what should yeah. take on this see abhishek you know until unless you don't understand your past properly you will never be able to understand your present and your future you know so thinking that you will be able to make a solid intervention or profound intervention in the present for the future without understanding the past never happens you know so instead of creating this past you know future dichotomy it is important to see the entire continuum understanding understanding of the past you know will help you understand the present which will help you make a solid intervention in the future it's not that the past has disappeared from the indian consciousness from the indian culture culture does not operate that way you know everything about the culture is not conscious culture largely is unconscious for most people and it requires a lot of internal inquiry to really understand the influence of culture on one's one's consciousness so all this happened you know within in in, in the past is still working within the indian consciousness I'm, you know I, i i i gave you an example right what is what is an effective form of leadership of or or governance within the indian society be inclusive listen to people you will be a powerful leader you know who who, who cannot be easily dislodged but what is the form of governance you know which which most indians follow at this point in time form of governance which has been imposed on us by the britishers 
you know most educated indians particularly in matters of governance consciously or unconsciously consciously are hierarchical and oppressive indians love yes men you know they love them i'm telling you and this is our greatest failing we don't you know most educated indians at this point in time they do not believe in deliberation of matters and taking decisions within a collectivity you'll rarely come across people you know who say okay here is a matter you know let's table it for discussion and the dis- and and whatever will be whatever emerges from this discussion is what is going to implement is, is going to get implemented this whole idea of the boss culture you know that works in the colonial framework in 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 the corporate world does not work you know if civilization wants to take the lead the the, the western form of governance usually you know is not is not very hierarchical and oppressive interestingly so what the colonial experience has done is that it has disconnected us from our past right and the west has taken things from india and reformed itself so there's you know in in in, in decolonizing uh, or decoloniality that you are talking about i am seeing a very problematic trend i do not know if this trend will get arrested or not there's a very strict dichotomy which is getting created of india and the west india and west are not separate entities the west has been influenced by india and india and and the west has influenced india there's a reciprocal relationship so for saying you know what is western and what is indian that requires a far deeper inquiry then what people are saying at this point in time it is you know it's it's good to rile up people you know by saying okay you know here is the western model you know with where which are imposed which we are imposing on the indian society yes there's truth to that i'm not denying it you know but in terms of exchange there is a far deeper reality than this very simplistic dichotomy which is getting created in the name of decolonization decoloniality or decolonization maybe you know it's the past part of the process but if it if it goes too far it will be problematic like let's say for instance you know when people say when when they talk about secularism or the uh, the separation of state and religion and they attribute it you know continually uh, you know to 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 west specifically yes you know within a particular social context this this emerged and this has helped west nicely but india has had its own form of separation of state quote and quote and quote religion why do i say this you know the evidence is there in arthashastra there was strict injunction on the ruler not to be imposing his tradition by that i mean the religious tradition culture language on the ruled on the governed and that is why you know i say 
that ashoka was not imposing buddhism on the people that's not what he was doing you know if he would have done that he would have gone in opposition to the arth shastra and dharma shastra and if he would have done that instead of becoming dhamma shok he would have remained a chanda shok so what i am saying is that you know as we uh, engage in decolonization decoloniality whatever we may say at this point in time there requires you know a deeper knowledge of what is indian and what is western and how this interchange has shaped and reshaped the west you know it is it 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 will take some time you know for people to develop this and that is why you know my understanding is that we need to shake off this intellectual laziness this intellectual tamas which has which has actually befallen us you know we will need to create scholars in the true sense how it was you know in the ancient times i'm not talking about brahman as a jati you know i'm i'm talking about brahman in terms of one kuna the brahmins you know they engaged in scholarship and nothing but scholarship now until unless you know we create that condition in india where scholars just engage in rigorous scholarship scholarship you know for their entire lifetime the transformation is not going to happen because you know the it's 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 a sea of knowledge or information that you actually have to wade through it's, it's it's not a simple matter it's not a simple matter so i understand i understand that you know that there is movement which is going on in terms of coloniality and decoloniality but it's it's in my, in my assessment of the situation it's a, it's a very very preliminary movement there it requires a far deeper nuance and a far deeper engagement thank you kundan singh ji actually the thing you mentioned about the current movement of decoloniality i personally had some kind of inhibition towards the movement that's been going on because there uh, as you mentioned the strict dichotomy between west and east or west and india and without seeing the interaction and the influence is not the or let's say is not the final journey of this movement and even though it's been very popular in social media as nowadays but it's not a scholarly work and thank you for clearing so much doubt personally for me this is the best session we had in this course and we look forward to you absolutely and you know and if people have more questions i'm i'm here you know see uh, yes time is important you know but it is also important in my understanding of shit to basically exhaust all the questions and the queries that they may have you know see if you if you actually look at the uh, traditional form of education you know and rekaji uh, 
I, you know, I, I, I want to say this to you as well. The traditional form of education in India has been very dialogical, very, very dialogical. It is not only there in the, uh, in the Upanishads, but even in my lifetime, you know, where I've spent my formative years in a village in India, if I remember, you know, going to a village school, that the, the teacher-student relationship was dialogical, you know. In, 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 in my elementary education, uh, uh, you know, in, in the village school, I don't remember, you know, a teacher coming to the class and giving a lecture. I don't remember that. And it is not because he or she did not know things. You know, would basically start the, uh, the session with a question. And, you know, and with the question, basically, the unpacking of the material began. You see? So it is very important. It's very, very important to dialogue. It's very important, you know, to move away from a didactic form of education to a dialogical form of education. And once again, you know, people who are in the business of education, it is very important that, you know, that you create space for that. And, and, and again, once again, you know, in that engagement, what is it that you are doing? As a teacher in a position of authority, you are in contact with the, with the inner reality, with the subjective reality of your student. You're listening, you're listening to the student very, very keenly. And when you will begin to engage in something like this, you will find that the student will not run away from your class. You know, education must address the inner needs of an individual. It must go here, you know. Whatever you are saying, if it is making sense to an individual, if, if it makes uh, the individual feel that whatever he or she is engaging in, in interaction with the, with the teacher is going to shape his or her life, you know, he or she will remain engaged with it. In a certain sense, you know, teaching is also a very self-denying and non-egotistical or non-egoical exercise. You know, we all like to become teachers, you know. It's, it's, it's something, you know, which requires tremendous amount of humility and engagement. And that is why, in the, you know, in Vivek Churamani, one of the characteristics of a teacher is that he or she should be compassion incarnate, love incarnate. So, yeah, so, you know, having said that, I would say that let's exhaust the questions, you know. Uh, we have time and, you know, and we should have time. We should make time for dialogue. That's what I would say. I'm here. And unless you feel that you need to close the session. I had a small doubt on the part that you told that the voting pattern is slightly based on the caste system. And it can be attributed to the past behavior of representation of Varnas to the di different bodies. So uh, how how much can we attribute to it? Because that system was uh, discontinued for a long time and for the most part of the India. So whether it is just yeah. a social thing or can we really attribute that to that particular behave, past behavior? 
that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, you pronounce your name as Vagish? Yeah. Vagish, okay. So Vagish, as I was telling you, that most things about culture, you know, are actually unconscious. They're not conscious. It is not at, you know, at the manifest level that things are happening. Things are subterranean. So there are a lot of things, you know, uh, which you will experience, um, you know, within the Indian culture, of which you have not studied or read. Like, let's say, for instance, you know, the respect for elders, right, is something which is part of the Indian culture. You know, it's a different matter that a lot of elders actually misuse that, you know, in uh, after having come in contact, you know, with the Western, with the Western world. But that the that age has to be respected is something which you find in the in the Dharma Shastra, coming from the ancient times. Education needs to be valued, you know. So there's you know there there's a quote unquote there's a there's an hierarchy with respect to uh, what needs to be respected over what that is described you know, in these texts. And when you will look at, you know, uh, the Indian culture and more so in rural India than in urban India, you will find that these practices are still in place. But if you ask the people there, you know, why do you do this? Where is it coming from? They will not be able to give you an answer. Like let's say for instance, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, that in your practice, conscious as well as unconscious, you know, you have been respecting elders or, you know, you have been respecting age. But did you know, before I said this to you, that this is an injunction on the Indian people coming from the Dharmashat? Right? So, so this is how, you know, culture actually works. So if we can actually extrapolate this example that I gave you, you will see that many of the the practices of the past, you know, are continuing in India even today. Does that address your question? And uh, I had another doubt. Well, mm -hmm. It was actually like uh, in Sanjeev Sanyal's book, book mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. he describes Ashoka as, well, he, he describes that Ashoka didn't change even after the Kalinga war. For that, he has given some material, uh, some descriptions of the tablet that says that if you don't agree with me, then uh, I, will, I will punish you in a several, several ways, like, uh, and so, several other accounts. So I find kind of uh, conflicting both views, uh, yours views and Sanjeev's views. No, that's why it's not conflicting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not conflicting. Why it is not conflicting is because you know, in those edits, Ashoka was not talking about Buddha Dharma. He was talking about, you know, the Raj Dharma. He was talking about the Arthashastra And Danda, Danda, you know, was very much a part of the Arthashastra. 
and that is what he is talking about so there is no contradiction you know it's like in uh, you know he he may have started following buddhism for his individual personal practice you know uh, before the kalinga war but even after the kalinga war when he is when he is spreading dharma you know he is not spreading dharma of the buddha for administrative matter for administrative matter you know he is basically talking about the dharma of the arthashastra you see does that remove your doubt yeah so that's raj dharma was part was yes. exactly so i think sir there are no more questions actually there is lot to reflect and contemplate after this lecture so and i am sort of words to pay the gratitude to you so thank you sir thank for you, this thank you.